0: Here safely, pray that you get home well as well. Uh, we're looking uh, and we have been uh, studying together 2nd uh, Kings in the Old Testament, and tonight we're going to look at 2nd Kings chapter 13. 2nd Kings chapter
1: 13.
0: And uh, this is uh, a section uh, that uh, uh, follows uh, uh, some history. That just let me uh, recap before I actually read chapter thirteen. You remember that uh, Jehu was anointed under uh, Elisha's uh, instructions and uh, to execute judgment upon the house of. Ahab in the northern kingdom. And Ahab was an especially wicked king. He and Jezebel uh, conducted themselves in ways that were especially uh, um, uh, uh, evil. And uh, so Je- Jehuk, uh brought about God's judgment on that. And um, we've seen as well that uh, um Uh, There was intermarriage between the house of Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and the house of Ahab in the north. And this was especially bad because uh, uh, that meant that the kings in the southern kingdom, sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, were imitating some of the ways of the kings of the north, and the northern kings were, were promoting idolatry and so uh, Jehoram uh, the son of Jehoshaphat married Athaliah and uh, Athaliah being uh, uh, was the daughter I'm sorry yeah yeah Jehoram was the son of Jehoshaphat he married the daughter of, of uh, Ahab Athaliah and uh, Jehoram uh, was so evil that he killed all of his brothers To stay on the throne he reigned for eight years and his son Ahaziah reigned and Ahaziah's mother was Athaliah and uh, Ahaziah you might remember was one of those killed by uh, Jehu in the purge that took place in the northern kingdom and so thus Athaliah's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah began and uh, she set out you remember this from last week to kill the entire royal family this is how evil and wicked um, she was Uh, this royal family uh, those that were left to kill were uh, the descendants of her deceased husband Jehoram's brothers that is her nieces and nephews and her grandchildren and uh, all of her grandchildren, and then um, you remember that Jehosheba, Ahaziah's sister, the wife of Jehoiada the high priest, saved one child uh, from death, whose name was Joash, and he was uh, probably under one year old. He was an infant, um, and they hid him in the temple for six years. And uh, Athaliah reigned during that time. She was an illegitimate ruler in uh, Judah. Uh, and Jeho- Jehoiada and his wife uh, Jehosheba raised uh, Joash and uh, at, when he was seven years old, he became the king of, of uh, the, the, northern, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, of course he ruled under Jehoiada's uh, direction. As, a, as he was but a young boy. But as he became king, we saw last week, that he set out to do good things. He repaired the temple. And um, he succeeded in bringing about many good uh, things with respect to the reestablishing of proper worship in the temple and the destru- destruction of uh, Baal worship that had even arisen due to Athaliah's influence, had arisen in the, the kingdom of Judah, and so there is a um, there there is a, a a period of time when the 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 kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of uh, Israel to the north were both engaged in very wicked practices. Well, uh, uh, when when uh, Jehoiada died, we see that Joash begins. Remember he was just seven years old when he began and he reigned under the influence of Jehoiada. When uh, when Jehoi- Jehoiada died at 130 years old, Joash began to listen to the advisors of uh, the towns and cities of Judah who were re- urging him to return to the worship of idols. And uh, as a consequence, uh, the Lord used the king of Syria to the north, Hazael, to punish the kingdom of Judah and to punish uh, Joash. And uh, Joash took all of the gold that was in the temple, the treasuries of the house of the Lord, and he gave it to Hazael, the king of Syria, to bribe him to go away. And uh, Hazael departed, but later Joash was assassinated and so we come now to chapter 13 of uh, this and in in chapter 13 we see that the attention of the writer of kings returns once again to the northern kingdom of Israel where the first one of Jehu's sons um, is reigning remember Jehu is the one who executed judgment on the house of Ahab He has a long reign, and when he died, the first of his sons reigns, and his name was Jehoahaz. I know it's hard to remember these names. Uh, They are so alike. Uh, I'm very aware of it uh, myself. And though uh, Jehoahaz is uh, very uh, wicked, yet we see that uh, because of God's promise to Jehu that God would allow His house to extend itself over four generations, and so uh, Jehoi has is uh, uh, He is not, as we're, we're going to see in just a minute, not a good king, and uh, we're going to see in this chapter. I want us to see uh, some surprises. You might, you might, when you're reading a book, sometimes you kind of. Are following things along and you expect things to come out in a certain way and and you're surprised at what you read so as we read chapter 13 I invite you to ask yourself the question what is it that is here that is surprising to me given the fact that the kingdom of the north Uh, is very much in uh, if if you're into the stock market at all very much in a bear market Uh, they have lower highs and lower lows so in a bear market that's what happens you have sometimes you have things are getting better but they don't get very much better and then it goes down again even farther and so that's what we see in the kingdom of Israel. In a sense, it's in a slide. But it's a slide that isn't just a straight shot down. There are there are, there are improvements along the way, and then there's more descent into toward ultimately the judgment of God falling on the kingdom of Israel. So as we read this, ask yourself, what are the surprises? So hear the word of God from 2 Kings chapter 13. In the twenty-third year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Ahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned seventeen years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the, the son of Hezael. And then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. And therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria, for there was not left to Jehoaz an army of more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. And now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned sixteen years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne and Jer- uh, yeah, Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria and uh, with the kings of Israel. And now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash the king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hand. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck them, and he struck three times and stopped. And then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. And so Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times, Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do pray that as we have read this account, that we might learn from it those things that would uh, speak to us in our need. For Lord, we come to you as those who are needy sinners, so in much, so much in need of your grace, would you show yourself to us in mercy this night? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to divide this into three parts, three surprises in this chapter, with an explanation at the end of the chapter as to what the, why things turned out the way that they did. And so the first surprise I want us to see, if we look together at verse Two, we see that Jehoahaz was evil he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he followed the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin and he did not depart from them now uh, you might be wondering what are the sins of Jeroboam the sons of Nebat uh, which he made Israel to sin and did not depart from and and, and basically the reference there is that uh, Jehoahaz continued the practice of Jeroboam in the the northern kingdom of Israel of worshiping God under the guise of of idols that he set up in uh, the land, one in the southern part and one in the northern. And he promoted the false worship of God. And he did so in spite of the fact that God had revealed himself clearly as being opposed to this. And so Israel, who was made in, and, and brought into a loving relationship with the God of the covenant instead of worshiping God as God had instructed them, they profaned the honor and the glory of God by worshiping idols. And uh, as Paul would say it, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of an ox, uh, the truth of God, into a lie. And isn't that what is the problem that we have? We don't truly know God as he's revealed himself, and we worship something that is the creation of our own minds. And this is what the people of of Israel did. They didn't listen to the prophets, but they worshiped God as they saw fit. And Jeroboam did that not only by setting up idols, but he made priests of anyone that he so desired. He set up his own religion in that uh, kingdom, and so we read in verse 3a that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and so the wrath of God comes into play here. And we see something of God's anger, and and how does that anger come to bear? It comes to bear in the form of um, uh, raids from the kingdom of Hazael, king of Syria. So the king of Syria to the north attacks the towns of the of the kingdom of Israel and uh, brings them under great duress. You can imagine if you're living in these towns and uh, the the Syrians come uh, charging through your town. You might be in the middle of the harvest or you might be in the middle of uh, the gathering of, 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 of your hard labors, the fruit of your labors, and all of a sudden that labor is gone and everything that you strove for is gone and there was great suffering in Israel. And so this, this oppression came upon them. And so is that not also something that we know and experience, and we see it? Uh, sometimes it, the reference is to uh, the woodshed. You know, you ever get taken to the woodshed? You know, do you ever, you ever experience God's, God's uh, displeasure? You know in your own mind, sometimes when you're experiencing a hard affliction of life, that it's not nearly as bad as what you deserve, but the Lord is, in a sense, working through those afflictions. And so what do we see? We see a surprise. Something surprising takes place. Jehovah eh has a wicked king. Praise! He prays. Verse 4, when Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, the Lord listened to him. Why? Because the Lord saw the oppression of Israel. The Lord saw the oppression of Israel. Matthew Henry says, some sparks of Israel's ancient honor remained. And so he sought this king who was was not a godly king, Yet he praised and he sought the favor or the grace of the Lord. Though he provoked the Lord to anger, yet he was humbled by his oppressive circumstances and the circumstances of Israel. And the wonderful, surprising thing is God's graciousness. This is what I want us to see. I want you to be surprised by God's grace. You would not expect, you would expect God to rub it in this man's face. But God here responds in a wonderful, gracious way. It says that uh, he listened to him. Verse four, and the Lord listened to him. Why? Because he saw the oppression. And that phrase, he saw the oppression, is one very similar that it occurs in Exodus when it says that the Lord saw the people of Israel in Egypt under the oppression of their slavery the difficult circumstances they were in. The Lord had mercy. And here you see the grace and the love of God. In verse 5, he gave them a Savior. And they escaped from the hands of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. And so here are people who, some of them, may have been taken away from their homes for a period of time. God raised up a deliverer. We're not told who the deliverer is. But uh, someone comes much this is much set up like the period of the time of the judges someone comes and uh, is a leader and leads uh, in a pushing pushing back against the Syrians who are raiding and 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 causing all of this havoc and God gives deliverance he gave deliverance to his unworthy idol worshipping people and so there's something here a revelation Of God's covenant love for his people how God is ever ready to hear when we pray that's what I want you to take from this Uh, Matthew Henry says how swift God is to show mercy how ready to hear prayers how willing to find out how, how willing to find out a reason as though A reason to be gracious. We're going to see in the end um, of this chapter the reason that is given. So we ought to be then moved to realize sometimes we're held back by our own sense of our own unworthiness. If this man who was a wicked king could cry out to God and God heard his prayer and God uh, gave a savior to the people of Israel, Unworthy though they were, God is ever ready to hear you when you cry to him. How much more is he ready to hear you when you cry to him in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And so I want to see then also that uh, the resulting of this is that, that the people of Israel, we're told, did not turn from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. They continued in them and uh, the people of Israel got weaker and weaker, so weak that they lost all their horsemen and their chariots. We read about that in verse 7. The army was just about decimated and made into nothing. And so uh, Jehoahaz died, and uh, he is buried. And his son uh, Jehoash, uh, the son of Jehoahaz, we're told in verse 10, begins to reign in Israel he also did what was evil and here we come now to the second surprise Jeho Jeho, Jehoash uh, uh, is a king that is dealt with very quickly you can see in verse 11 he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the sons of Nebat which he made Israel to sin to sin but he walked in them and then that's it for him now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might, etc., cetera, uh, are they not written? And so Joash slept with his fathers and, and that's it. But then you have this account that immediately follows and the break that it shows in the ESV. I kind of wish that break wasn't there because the, the author says, is basically saying, this king was a wicked king and there's not much to say, but there is one thing <laughs> that I want to tell you about. This one event uh, that tells you everything you know, you need to know, About this king, and that is uh, his uh, meeting with um, his meeting with Elisha. We're told uh, that Elisha had fallen sick in verse 14, with the sickness with which he was to die. So Elisha, the prophet, the great prophet, is coming to the end of his life, and um, and uh, Joash, the king of Israel, goes down to him. To visit him and that's a good thing it is a good thing this is a good thing that this evil king did he went to the prophet and he uh, cried uh, my father my father the chariots of Israel and the horsemen and, and, and so what's what, what, this expression uh, of, of in, intense emotion weeping um, why was he weeping uh, probably not uh, for Elisha uh, probably for the fact that he knew that Elisha represented Israel's strength the word of god as it was ministered through Elisha the prophet were was as effective as the was, was the chariots of Israel and its horsemen you might remember in some of the events in Elisha's life in which Uh, The the chariots of God, the angels, came um, and and did amazing things under his direction. And uh, with Elisha's death, uh, this king, uh, Joash, feels that his kingdom is going to be defenseless. And it's really a selfish uh, thing that he expresses. Uh, Ralph Davis says, The presence of the prophet and the ministry of his word had been a shield to the nation. And yet, uh, now it appears this king is worried that once the prophet's ministry is no longer there, that, uh, you, that Israel will be left defenseless. And yet we see um, that uh, God gives Joash a promise. Elisha gives Joash a promise. And this we see in this event that takes place with this uh, Elisha's giving instructions to Joash and this is the the writer really wants you to focus on this because he's telling you every command uh, that Elisha gives and everything that Joash does in response he says take a bow and arrows verse 15 so he took a bow and arrows and he said to the king of Israel draw the bow and he drew it and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands And I want you to see imagine that in your mind the king is uh, draw. He has his bow drawn. It's pointing out the window. What does Elisha do? He walks up behind the king. He puts his hand on the one hand and his hand on the other. So you can imagine, his body was enveloping the king. Now, Anytime his body envelopes somebody, you kind of think there's more to this than meets the eye. And it's right that uh, he is... He is he is wrapping his body, he's putting his hands on the king's hands, and they open the window, and Elisha says, shoot, and he shoots. And Elisha then gives a promise, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians until you have made an end to them. You see here how he instructs him. But the significance of this, it was an acted oracle. That's basically what it is. It's an acted oracle, and it is almost a sacrament. The act itself is the power of God coming through the prophet onto the king. And the king here receiving, uh, uh, you, can, uh, you, can, you can just uh, see God's grace coming to this king through the prophet's act and promise Promising him a victory he doesn't deserve. Promising him to delay the judgment that the judgment that God is bringing upon Israel is going to be delayed. And this, again, is God's surprising grace. Matthew Henry says, The trembling hands of the dying prophet, as they signified the concurrence and communication of the power of God, gave this arrow more force than the hands of the king in full strength. That's a, kind of the nature of a sacrament. a sacrament, you take something that is ordinary. By itself, it's ordinary. God's word makes it an instrument of grace. And that's what this is. God is acting through Elisha and pouring out his promise of grace Upon this king so then um, the, the, the prophet Elisha um, after he shoots the arrow and makes a promise now he says in verse 18 take the arrows and he took them and he said strike the ground with them and he struck three times and he stopped now the, the key phrase there is and he stopped Elisha said strike the ground and he probably had a quiver full of arrows or however however many at least five or six. And, uh, and uh, Elisha said, take those arrows now. And uh, now you can either think of this as taking the arrows themselves and hitting the ground with them, or you can think of it as shooting them into the ground instead of off into the distance. Three times, shoot into the ground. And uh, what, is, what is the response? He does this, he strikes the ground with them, Three times and he stops. Now that is significant. That is significant. It's significant in in Elisha's mind. What is it? What does it mean? Uh, Matthew Henry says perhaps he smote three times very coldly because he thought that it was a silly thing, a silly and idle thing, and a childish thing for a king to shoot arrows into the ground. For whatever the reason, Joash obeyed this instruction reluctantly and half-heartedly. That's the meaning of, and he stopped. Now, here's the thing. When God comes to you in his grace and mercy, he issues you the promise of, of his love, his, the promise of the forgiveness of your sins, of the promise of his salvation through Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Question then is, does that strike you in such a way that you respond with your whole heart? Yes, Lord, whatever you say. I believe, I trust. And the king here indicated kind of like, what am I doing this for? He didn't see the meaning of it. And so the question then comes to us, how do we hear? How do we listen? How do we respond to God's gracious promise? Here the prophet gave him a promise of victory over Syria. And God has given you so great and many promises in Jesus Christ. How do you respond? Half-heartedly? Lightly? Or is it something that to which you respond with fervency and wholeheartedness? Psalm 95 that we sang tonight. Uh, Today, if you hear his voice. The writer of Hebrews says, Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion and the days of testing in the wilderness. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we all come to share in Christ indeed, if we hold that original confidence to the end. So that's the second surprise God's gracious promise to this king that he would have a victory over Syria but his half-hearted response to that promise meant that the victory would just be partial the third thing I want us to see and I am trying to move quickly here is uh, you know the the, the Syrians are r- r- running havoc over um, over the towns and the cities of Israel Elisha died And uh, they buried him. Now, take take a minute to just take note of that. Elijah, the prophet that Elisha followed, what happened with him? He was taken to heaven. It's an interesting thing to notice that Elisha, his disciple and follower, dies and is buried. But an amazing thing happens with respect to his burial site. So, as the Syrians are wreaking havoc on these groups of men who are working in the fields, and, and here's a group of men, they're, they're burying someone who has died. They've dug a grave and they're ready to, to put him in. And uh, all of a sudden, the Syrians come, they raid. And what do they do? They take this body and they Throw the body in a grave that already exists happens to be Elisha's and what happens what happens it says that as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha he revived and stood on his feet amazing an amazing thing though Elisha is dead and his bones are buried Yet his bones become the instrument of God's power. Elisha, the, king, the, the, the prophet, was dead. But God is not. That's what you need to know. <laughs> people, will, people are the instruments. Elisha was an instrument. When it was his time to die, he died. But the living God continues. And that same is true for you. Tonight, God is able to give you life. This is the message that comes. Israel is about to experience the judgment of God. It will have it will have a continued. It will continue for a while longer. But um, you remember that the first readers of this book of Kings were those living Jewish exiles who had been deported. Later, what do they see? What do they hear when they hear about the bones of Elisha giving life? It is this, that God, God's promises never fail. And what lies ahead for Israel, that is for those who continue to trust in the God of Israel what lies ahead for all those who believe in the one whom he has sent, even Jesus Christ. God's great power will work through contact with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Elisha's bones are a type or a symbol of the cross of Christ. It is through Trust and saving faith in Christ, in his death on the cross, that is the instrument of power. Paul says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so the death of Christ is that which Elisha's death is a symbol of. And the resurrection of Christ is that which this man's resurrection is a symbol of, it is Christ's resurrection that is the guarantee as well of the resurrection of all who trust in him. So here you are. You are in terrible circumstances. Your life can be mar- is marked by the curse of sin and death. What is it? What is the source of life? What is the source of resurrection? How do I, where do I go from here It is by abandoning all hope that resides in you and trusting alone in Jesus Christ and his death for you and his resurrection on the uh, the third day. And it points to the fact that God is rich in mercy and great love. We have then a picture of his resurrection power at work and the lives of those who trust him. And I want us to see finally the explanation that is given at the end that uh, verse 22 and 23 are beautiful verses. Now, In, in verse 22, you have sort of the, 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 the reality that the people of Israel were living with Hazel, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jeho Ahaz. It was a real oppression. It was difficult. These were hard days. But verse 23 says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. I want you to hear that phrase. He turned toward them. Not away from them, but toward them. Because of his covenant, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he says, he would not destroy them, nor would he cast them away from his presence until now. In other words, up until this point, God keeps delaying, keeps delaying. And so it is often the case that we experience waves of oppression. But God delays judgment, he delays judgment, until finally we are brought to a place Of repentance and faith and trust in him and so this points us to doesn't it notice notice um, also it says the covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob notice that it doesn't say the covenant that he made with David if this was if this was spoken concerning Kings in the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem it would be the promise that God made to David that he would always have a son on the throne but here in the northern kingdom of Israel the references to the covenant made with the patriarchs with Abraham Isaac and Jacob and if there's one thing you know about the covenant that God made with Abraham Isaac and Jacob it was unilateral it was unconditional. It was God promising to give Abraham a seed and to do everything that Abraham needed to bring him into the promised land, his descendants, and uh, Abraham into the promised land. And God undertakes it. And so the question then is, what is the channel of blessing for us tonight The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. It is through the covenant that God made with Jesus Christ, and it's because of the covenant that God made with Jesus Christ, that you are offered grace, that you are offered the salvation, that you are offered the forgiveness of your sin. It's because of that. And so then... This is a surprising chapter, isn't it? You have all these wicked people doing wicked things and wicked kings and wicked people brought to oppressive condition, and in the end they don't respond as they should. But God's faithfulness, his goodness, is continually shown time after time after time. So what I want you to know is that God is always ready. He is, as Matthew Henry says, in a sense, looking for a reason to be gracious. And so if you're going through a time in your life where you know that you need to get down on your knees and pray to God, fervently pray, don't think, don't think that God will turn his back. Don't think that God will not hear. Remember that phrase, he turned toward them. He listened, he turned toward them. And it's God's promise to you in Christ that he will do the same for you every time you turn to him in prayer. Surprised by grace, that's the message of this chapter. But grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given to us a savior you have given to us the one who is the seed of abraham the one who is the god man who has accomplished everything for us and in his death and resurrection we have life oh father may it be that we would continually be turning to you ever realizing your readiness to hear us help us to do that we pray and forgive us for the, the way that we don't. Help us, O oh God, to respond to you with all of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn tonight is uh is uh hymn number three hundred and ninety-one. Come, O come, thou quickening spirit. Let's stand together and sing. of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.